If you're British, you've very likely seen this video of Paddington Bear visiting Queen Elizabeth II at Buckingham Palace. It was put out just this June to celebrate her 70th anniversary on the throne. Thank you for having me. I do hope you're having a lovely jubilee. Tea? Oh, yes, please. Paddington's the popular children's book character, and he downs the tea without sharing it with the queen. And then when he realizes how rude that was, he offers her a marmalade sandwich that he keeps for emergencies in his hat. But it turns out the queen also has an emergency marmalade sandwich. I keep mine in here. Which she keeps in her iconic purse. For later. It's super cute. And if you had to summarize how it presents the queen in one word... The best word, by far, would be grandmotherly. She was the nation's grandma. Sweet, a little mischievous, would definitely give you a cookie even if your parents said no cookies. I'm playing this video for you because people in the UK have been coming out in droves since the Queen died last week. As I record this, there's a five-mile-long queue snaking around central London to see her coffin. And a much larger proportion of the people out than any of us expected are young. I was curious how young people are processing this event and how they'd seen Queen Elizabeth when she was alive. It got me thinking about the fact that for young people, I guess I'm talking about people under 30, Mm -hmm. in their memory, the Queen has always been an old person, an old woman. That's Imogen West Knights. She's a friend of the podcast. And she's been speaking to young people around Buckingham Palace since last weekend for a piece in the magazine this week. And I think there's a sort of softening thing that we do when we look at older women and we kind of grandmarify them a bit and maybe Mm -hmm. they become kind of cute and, yeah, soft in the public imagination. So it's interesting to me that a lot of younger people did think of her in that sort of fond, cuddly kind of way. And I think that's something that the crowd do encourage as well, you know, the whole Paddington Bear thing. Today, we talk with Imogen about what she's been hearing on the streets of London. We also bring in our own producer, Lulu Smith, for a conversation about young people and the crown. Then I speak with our U.S. business editor, Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson, about where we're spending our money and time now. Post-pandemic, we want to spend because we're restless, but we have less money because of inflation. And that collision has affected how we interact with culture. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Last Thursday afternoon, before the news broke that the Queen had died, Imogen published a piece in Slate magazine saying that we should brace ourselves for a roller coaster. By that night, it was happening. Public events were canceled across Britain. The news shifted to almost exclusively royal coverage. People started coming to Buckingham Palace to lay flowers and to lay Paddington Bears and to lay marmalade sandwiches. And Imogen headed out. She wanted to see the crowds for herself and know who was out there and why they'd come. Imogen, thanks for being here. Nice to be here. Nice to be back. So... I have to ask, you know, after the Queen died, you spent that weekend around Buckingham Palace and you were talking to people who came out to mark the Queen's death. And before we get into reflections, I'm curious, just can you paint the picture for me a little bit? Like, what did you see? 
Yeah, so I went on the tube to Green Park, which is the nearest station to the palace. And even at the station, it was really busy and on the pathways that lead lead up to it. And was it like, I mean, it's. I imagine it's very different from a royal wedding there. Well, it's odd, right? Because they're preparing for the funeral. So right. they're building all this infrastructure around the palace at the moment. So there were kind of like lorries beeping and construction noise, but also this sort of somber quiet. I don't know, it was all just very odd. And then it changed over the weekend. So I think as more and more people were coming down, they had to put in more crowd control stuff, more marshals, more barricades. Did it feel sort of like a congregation of people just kind of looking for a place to be? Did it feel like disorganized? Yeah, no, it did feel like people weren't really sure what they were supposed to be doing when they got there. I think there are a lot of people who had just come down because they felt that they ought to insert themselves or to have some kind of memory of what they were doing on that weekend. Mm. Because, it, you know, it's massively historic moment for people in this country because it's never happened for almost everybody who is alive in this country. We've never had the death of a monarch. Imogen is 30. So it isn't just that she and her peers don't remember the last time that a monarch died. Their parents don't remember. Maybe not even their grandparents. There's, of course, a script for formal proceedings around the death of the queen. But people don't have a template for how they're supposed to act and feel right now. Which makes this gap, this week between the queen's death and the funeral on Monday, a kind of liminal space. You can't get away from the coverage, so people are waiting. They're thinking about the monarchy... And maybe for the first time, they're forming their own defined opinion about it. Imogen, I'm especially interested in how young people are reacting to the Queen's death. Did you find that there were a lot of young people out over the days that you were there? Yeah, no, I did. I saw lots of teenagers, people in their early 20s. I mean, obviously, it's a self-selecting crowd. It's people who do want to be there and therefore probably feel pro monarchy in a general sense. But I guess I was surprised particularly by, I spoke to quite a few younger women who felt like the Queen in some way represented something positive for women, like Mm -hmm. having a female head of state was something that they thought was good for them. Imogen says some young people like that King Charles has spoken out so publicly about the environment. And obviously that's something that younger people are thinking about a lot. At the moment, a lot of other young people she talked to came out just to feel like they were touching a part of history. But I wanted a more subjective take. What does it feel like to be a young British person right now? Imogen, like, I don't know how you would identify, but you're a young British person. (laughs) And I don't (laughs) and I don't expect you to speak on behalf of all young British people. But you're also a journalist and a cultural commentator. And First of all, where are you coming to all of this from? Like, what was your perception of the monarchy entering Buckingham Palace or or thinking about this before she died? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember picking up anything specifically to do with the monarchy from, for instance, my family or from adults that were close to me. You know, I didn't grow up in a household where we'd spoke much about the royals. They were just kind of background noise. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I grew up in London, so I was obviously, I guess, near to where the royals were a lot of the time, but I didn't, you know, that's a thought that I had when I was at Buckingham Palace this weekend is I'd kind of forgotten that they're literally here. Like that <laughs> where they live is, is also where I live. Like they mm-hmm. live in London because it feels like they don't really. They live in so many ways 
on a completely different plane of existence from the rest of us. Mm. So I think unless you grow up in a rabidly socialist household, which I didn't, you know, my parents are not monarchists or anti-monarchists. I don't know, there's just something in the air. Like I remember being very young and thinking that it was sad for people who are not from Britain because it's the best place in the world. And, (laughs) you know, where did that idea come from? It came from everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, when I was a child, the monarchy was very much a part of that. And then as I got older and more educated and learned about Britain's place on the world stage, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't I don't have any fondness for the monarchy or the royal family personally. And the people that I mix with as an adult don't either. You know, we're all annoying leftists. <laughs> so Imogen is basically anti-royalist, but she says that's not the point. The point is that people her age have never really had to seriously contend with the politics of the monarchy because the queen was always just there doing what the queen did, whatever you might have thought of the institution. Can you explain sort of what you understand the sentiment to be among young British people, um, your friends and otherwise, sort of around the monarchy? Like, even though it's broad, how would you explain it? Like, who likes it and who doesn't? I mean, it's difficult to generalize how young people feel about the Queen. I think the feelings vary. You know, the spectrum is as wide as it is for older people. I just think that maybe the Queen means something slightly different because of this thing of her being a sort of benevolent grandmother figure too many and actually I have also been surprised among people I know who are not pro the monarchy and feel that we shouldn't have one and that it's you know we should have elected public officials etc who have admitted to feeling a little sad Mm. because it's just she's always been there why do you think the grandmother image has become such a big thing like especially for people who are grappling with the crown's role in colonialism and things like that. I think it's because, I mean, it's partly she just, she looks old. She was old. And when she appeared Mm. in public, she didn't do a lot of talking. You know, she talked to people, but what she said to them wasn't often reported. So you kind of just had the image, you know, she would turn up at the opening of a whatever, shake some hands, wear a nice little outfit and smile at people and wave. And Mm. I think that allowed people to kind of, yes, just sort of look at her and think, oh, she's a like smiley old lady. Mm -hmm. It's an image thing because actually there was very little else to go on. Right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I would love to think through this culturally with you. Like, I mean, one thing I was thinking is that, you know, there might be a dividing line for how different generations think about the queen and the royal family. Like, Maybe it's people who remember when Princess Diana died and people who don't. Maybe it's, you know, that like the kind of culture that different generations have been consuming around the royal family has something to do with how they view the queen and the monarchy. I'm Mm. curious if you think that like, you know, millennials were maybe more likely to watch The Crown, Gen Z maybe more likely to be following Princess Diana fashion Instagram accounts. Mm. Yeah, I think The Crown did come up um, in conversations that I had outside the palace with people who were let's say 25-ish. I was talking to a guy from the Isle of Wight who was talking about how he loved the monarchy because um, he was fascinated by them and the kind of glamour of their lifestyle almost and had talked about getting interested in them since watching The Crown. And so I think for some people having the lens of something like The Crown as the primary lens through which they look at the monarchy makes them almost more 
like celebrities than they might otherwise have been because Mm -hmm. you know they're the people off the telly that then they know their stories and they're played by beautiful people and that they can kind of I don't know think about them in a slightly more yeah celebritified kind of way rather than as part of a power structure that has any actual bearing on their lives. I would love to bring um, our producer Lulu on because I'm kind of curious from both of you like how you think this period will affect what people will think about the crown and what young people will think about the crown like Lulu was saying this morning that it's been bizarre to see this sort of like archaic image of Britain in the news that doesn't really connect with how you live day to day and like see that sort of reflected back at you. And um, yeah, I'm curious about it. Lulu, you were also out talking to people for us last week and you are also a young person in Britain. What are your thoughts about it? Yeah, my sense of it is like, even if you're kind of politically engaged young person, then the monarchy isn't or hasn't really been anywhere near the top of your agenda. Like there are so many things that are wrong constitutionally and politically and like in the world that if you were going to focus on like abolishing the monarchy, it would seem kind of arbitrary. But this has brought it to the fore in a way that has never really happened before. So I feel like a lot of people are engaging with the question of like what the monarchy means and whether they want it to exist in the first place. Mm-hmm. Whether that's going to lead to any kind of significant change, who can say? But it's definitely going to change the temperature of things, I think. Yeah. It is probably still sort of too soon to say because I think a lot of it will depend on what Charles does next. And Mm. he's coming to the throne at a very interesting time. Cost of living crisis, price of gas, price of electricity, just general bad feeling in this country. The ba- the vibes are off, I've got to say. Everything feels very, yeah, unstable, provisional, post-pandemic. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I mean, already we've kind of had a demonstration of the fact that the Queen was extremely good at not appearing imperious. And Charles has mm. already fallen at that hurdle. There was a clip going around <laughs> of him gesturing in the kind of angry looking way for an aide to take something off his table when he was signing some papers which no one's ever seen the queen do something like that and she's been around for a very very long time so i think already with seeing that his command of his public image is maybe not as good as the queen's was and that may come to have effects further down the line i don't know what do you think lulu i think also seeing like king charles across the news like his hands being kissed outside buckingham palace and right. all of the press being commanded by the same story it's almost like you're kind of getting the cultural export that is England or what other countries see reflected back in a way that feels very archaic or anti-modern in a way yeah it seems to kind of contradict the internet age that we are so accustomed to now this hasn't happened for 70 years but when it last happened it was more in key with the kind of cultural atmosphere of the time whereas now Mm. there's such a weird dissonance between the coverage and the kind of ceremonial aspects and then the way that we're used to receiving that information through like the chaos that is social media or 24-hour news outlets it does feel like we're sort of trapped in this vortex of like it's almost (laughs) like a time warp or something yeah i really i really agree with that yeah imogen and lulu thanks so much for talking through this thanks for having me yeah thanks 
You can find Imogen's Dispatch from Buckingham Palace in this week's FT Weekend magazine. I've put the link to it in the show notes. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but have you noticed that we're in yet another weird phase of the pandemic? I think it's the it isn't over, but we're pretty over it phase with a twist, which is that most of us aren't paying too much attention to the virus itself anymore. But right when we're ready to spend, the economy isn't having it. I think now we are in quite a distinct phase where certainly in a place like New York where both you and I are, pretty much everything is open. There's very little not available to us culturally or economically uh, in terms of shopping and, and things like that. But this has collided with a massive shift in the economy with a kind of 40-year high in inflation. So I, you know, I think there's an interplay of kind of time, money, priorities going on at the moment. That is my colleague Andrew Edgecliff-Johnson. We call him Edge. He is the FT's U.S. business correspondent, and I recently invited him onto an Instagram Live to talk about where we are now. I do think particularly for people who are not, uh, you know, don't have a lot of money in the bank, there is a very different financial backdrop now where gas is, is costing a lot more than it used to. Food is costing a lot more than it you see up to double digits. And so that doesn't leave quite as much left over for everything from your uh, HBO subscription to your new outfit to the concert ticket that you might want to get. So we're two and a half years into COVID-19. There are more things to spend money on. And in turn, our habits are changing again. I definitely find myself focusing more on experiences Although there's been this tension. I mean, you were talking about time and money, and I'm curious about that because I feel this tension of like the things that I bought got bougier in the pandemic and more expensive. <laughs> like my candle selection has really like my my budget for candles really went up. And then I went out there and now I'm spending money on dinners and I have less money for candles, but I'm still used to the candles. I can't go down in the, you now know, you, in the you value. You are not alone. You're not alone there. I, I, I interviewed um, the CEO of Newell Brands, which owns Yankee Candle, among a load of other weird brands like Sharpie Pens. But right. he was saying, yeah, early in the pandemic, everybody was buying candles. It was people who'd never bought a scented candle before suddenly <laughs> right. felt the need to have 20 of them around their bathtub. But they have now gone back to not buying candles again. Okay. Now, and I, I think... It's worth remembering quite how weird our spending was on some it of the stuff in the early months. And so we all now have a rice cooker and we have candles and we have <laughs> some very weird ingredients in our cupboards from those ambitious moments. But that was when we had nothing else to spend money on. And a lot of us also had stimulus payments from governments coming in, which kind of paid off the credit cards and gave us a bit, bit more cash to spend. What Edge is seeing in the data is that consumers are being more selective than they used to be. Take, for example, theater. Inflation is making us price sensitive, so people are seeing fewer productions. But they're spending a lot of money to see flashy shows with big stars. Broadway attendance is down by about half in the most recent season versus pre-pandemic. So it's kind of not every theater's reopened. They're not all running at capacity. They're not running as many shows. But 
for the big shows like yeah, Music Man, for example, Hugh Jackman, I think is in, in mm-hmm, Music Man. Mm-hmm. I checked this week how much orchestra tickets would be for that show. They start at two hundred and ninety-two dollars, and they go up to two thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! Wow! Yeah, we were seeing a trend towards blockbusters across media. In a weird way, what the data is showing is that people are staying in harder and going out harder. We want it all, even when the money's tight. Maybe especially when the money's tight. I have a theory on this that I'd be interested in your thoughts on. Mm -hmm. I think we always felt a little bit guilty about slumping down on the couch at the end of the day, watching Netflix, you know, playing a video game, uh, just kind of indulging Mm -hmm. in entertainment. Um, And I, I think that got rebranded through the pandemic as the kind of necessary self-care, kind of yeah. mental health break. Do you, do you think that's the case? I think so. I mean, like, people talk about having a limit now that they didn't used to. You know, like, we used to kind of work ourselves to the bone. Yeah. I don't know if this is like some weird COVID trauma thing, but there's something very comforting about being home. So, like, staying home as a place to recharge and watching a TV show alone and, like, doing something digital online is okay. I, I actually, I looked up the figures on this and um, Pew, the you know, research organization, found that, again, among Americans, 35% say that you know, going out is now less important to them. Mm-hmm. But 21% say that going out is more important to them. And only 9% are actively trying to avoid crowds at this point. So, right, that's low. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it's that we've kind of, we fear the outside world. We don't want to be around other people. We think we're going to get sick. But I, I think it's much more of a kind of, no, I, I deserve this. The one you end up doing, whether it's treating yourself to more nights in or paying for big experiences, depends a lot on how you're holding up in this economy. You know, it really depends on which one you can afford. What we're seeing now from the surveys that a real split in spending between people who earn under about $150,000 a year and families that own over that. the, The wealthier you know, wealthier Americans certainly are really prioritizing travel. They're prioritizing experiences. They are prioritizing newness. So Nordstrom had the U.S. department store group said, actually, it's not price for them. It's newness. They want the stuff they haven't seen you know, mm-hmm. for the last couple of years. But the kind of the poorer, uh, lower income families are, you know, trading down from Walmart to the dollar stores. You know, there's a real pinch on the clothing companies, the apparel companies like Gap and and actually department stores, Coles and others. And they're saying, we've been stuck with a lot of excess inventory because people just don't have the money to buy clothes once they've filled up the car and filled up their grocery basket. Whatever your income level is, it does seem like this post-COVID roaring 20s dream is not exactly materializing. That's something that struck both Edge and me as we were preparing for this conversation. I was thinking about around that time that we were getting the vaccine. So like February, March, April 2021, people were trying to rebrand this like post-COVID era as the Roaring Twenties. Anna Wintour was telling our colleague Anna Nicolau that there would be a Roaring Twenties boom for luxury goods and high fashion. And we were all going to want to like go spend a bunch of money and get all dressed up and look our best and go out there and like live our best lives Um, anyway, I'm looking around and I'm thinking like, are we in the roaring twenties? Like, is this 1999? It, 
It doesn't really feel... <laughs> yeah, they, no, this, it's funny you, you say this because I, you know, I spend my time talking to CEOs and asking them, you know, what's, what the future holds. And I had one of those conversations myself with the CEO of Wynn Resorts, the, right. the casino owner in, in Las Vegas. Um, and about a month or two back, I thought, I have not heard anybody mention the Roaring Twenties for a while. And I, <laughs> I had there's a service called Sentio, which which keeps transcripts of all of the company's earnings calls when they're, you know, discussing their numbers with Wall Street every quarter. And you can search them. And so I just searched the words Roaring Twenties. No CEO had mentioned this <laughs> phrase since I think uh, yeah, mid to late 2020. At the same time, it's quite hard to get a room in a high-end hotel in Tahiti, I believe. Right. I've not tried, I have to say. But there is a very robust world of, of high spenders out there mm -hmm. who are interested in kind of bespoke, tailored, privileged experiences. And even at the more, more within-reach uh, income brackets, then uh, people are doing the big trip. They're doing the bucket list trip this yeah. year if they can get, get to the country on their bucket list and there are no kind of travel restrictions still. Edge, my last question that we're getting quite a lot of, we're getting a lot of questions about the consumption of alcohol, which was not going to be my last <laughs> question, but do you have any off the top of your head knowledge on that? I can tell you, I did not learn to bake bread or um, <laughs> speak Mandarin. I did improve my cocktail game and I have been a very faithful contributor to the growth of the American distilled spirits industry. Excellent, um, as have I. And, and this again goes to the kind of, bifurcation of, you know, high-end and low-end income groups. Mm -hmm. you know, even as everybody's worried about the rising cost of, of food, of petrol, and people are kind of really cut, you know, cutting back and trading down from uh, deli meats to spam, you know, in, in, in some cases. You're also having the spirits industry talk about this trend of premiumization, which is mm -hmm. not a neologism I like very much, but people are still trading up to the good tequila, the good gin, and that doesn't seem to be going away. I'm not unhappy to see the craft gin revival, you know, still going strong. Yeah. Uh, I think that's going to be with us for a while. Yeah. Um, Edge, this was really fun. Thank you for we doing this. We covered a lot of ground. We, um, we did. We talked about, we put the world to rights. You can watch our whole conversation on the Financial Times Instagram account. I've put the link in the show notes. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we're talking to my colleague Jemima Kelly about NFTs and whether NFTs and art are actually kind of over. She is hosting this season of another great FT podcast called Tectonic, which you should check out. We also have Katie Hessel on. She just came out with a book called The Story of Art Without Men. It's an anthology of women artists throughout history, which is something, shockingly, that has never really been done. Thank you to everyone who came to the festival a few weeks ago. It was such a delight to meet so many of you in person. We will have an episode dedicated to that in the coming weeks. A personal request from me, if you like the show, it turns out that leaving a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen is really still the best way to help people find the show who don't know about it, and it's the best way to support the work that we're doing. You can also recommend our show on your social media feeds and tag us. That really helps us, too. 
We love hearing from you, so do say hi. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my incredible team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. This week we were executive produced by Manuela Zaragoza. And special thanks go to Manuela and Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week.